Our sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. The word of God speaks to us like this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Amen. How are you guys doing? Good. It's, uh, it's really fun to be with you guys today. If we haven't met, my name is Josh Curry, and uh, I serve as the lead pastor of Frontline Church in downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, this is my wife, Nancy. We planted Frontline downtown in 2005, and I get to serve as one of the elders that helps encourage our lead pastors, and I love this congregation. Uh, I love what God's doing here. It's been a real gift to get to worship with you guys today. Just know that you have four other congregations that love you. They're praying for you. And uh, even feeling the life of God in this church today has been a real gift to me. And we're asking God for a building. This has been an amazing gift to get together in here. But we, we do know the need for a permanent base for mission. And we're praying for that and working towards that. And uh, I'm just really thankful for the grittiness and the flexibility and the way that you guys engage even in the midst of this place. It's not, it's not perfect, but you guys are making it a home, making it work, and I'm really proud of you. Um, two gifts that you guys gave me today that I want to mention before we pray and dive in. The first, uh, the first is that Puckett's been talking for like two months about the Frontline Yukon baby boom. Um, just the prolific, the prolific number of babies. And we've all been like, yeah, sure, a lot of babies. And I showed up, and at the 9 o'clock, it was like somebody kicked over an ant pile of babies. There, there were babies everywhere. There was a roving gang of babies on this side of the room. There, there were babies climbing up and down the rafters over here. I think a baby at one point threw a beer bottle at me. I felt like I was in Roadhouse, but it was babies. Uh, and it, it's just like, it's an amazing thing, man. Like, it, as a dad of two adult kids, um, I got a boy who's a, he's a Marine. He's 19, stationed in California. And I've got a daughter who's uh, 21, wrapping up her bachelor's. And uh, just as a dad, as a father, it's a real gift to see generational ministry happening in our church. And uh, we just believe that babies are not, they're not a burden. They're not an obstacle. They're a gift from God. And it's a beautiful thing that you guys are stewarding the gift of so many babies and so many kids in the life of this church. And I just wanted to say, thank you guys. Thanks for, uh, you know, I think Puckett was a little, little nervous that I was stressed out uh, because babies were shouting me down during the entire sermon. And and man, those babies are loud, but they're world conquerors. Any baby that can cry like that for that long is going to do great things, great things with her life. So thanks for that. That's been really fun. And then the second thing, um, just to have two strong, present, godly female leaders stand up and lead intercession today. Um, the way you led today was a real gift to me. And uh, the way that uh, Sarah led in the nine was a real gift. To have women that know who they are, that are not angsty as we talk about godly manhood, that are confident in the fact that they're daughters of the living God and that have the burden of God reflected for their brothers, that are not walking in enmity and comparison and competition, but delight in masculine strength. That's a beautiful thing. That's a powerful thing and a prophetic thing. And I just pray that God multiplies that across our church. All right, um, let me give you two texts to find if you got a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 and Galatians 4. And if you want to find those, you can. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. And I'm going to pray for you. 
Father, I thank you that we don't have to do anything to make you willing to give us good gifts. Thank you that the posture of your heart is a posture of inexpressible generosity. That all things exist because of your generosity. That we've experienced redemption because of your generosity. And thank you that in this moment, you have good things to give sons and you have good things to give daughters. And I ask that uh, today, Father, in your, in your beautiful sovereign grace and power, would you distribute what we need? Uh, with nobody looking around, I just have a sense there's some people in the room that feel like you're barely hanging on. And the Father wants to meet you today in desperation and give you good gifts. So Lord, would you give us a, a open posture? Would you give us a hungry posture and a receptive posture? And would you give us what we need today? Speak to us and shape us and form us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so I was thinking during worship just a couple of minutes ago about this epic trip I got to go on about four or five years ago. Uh, there's a group of buddies that are church planters in North Carolina that we partner with. And they live in the Outer Banks. And one of those guys is one of my best friends. And we try to do vacations together. We go spearfish together. And uh, that guy knows a guy who used to be a professional sailor. And this guy that was a professional sailor found this amazing sailboat that had been left in a field. And over the course of like close to five years, he meticulously repaired the entirety of this sailboat. New rigging, new wood, fixed all the rot. It's a beautiful boat. It's like a 40 plus foot, foot uh, sailboat. And uh, he invited me and my son to go with him when he did the sea trial for this boat. So it was going to be an overnight trip to go out into the Gulf Stream about 80 miles offshore and then to sail back. And I love the ocean. I'm an ocean guy, but I don't know anything about sailing. And I was just stoked to get to come. And I'm the guy on a trip like that where I'll try to make up for my ignorance by just give me dirty jobs and I'll do them. I'll carry heavy stuff and untie ropes. Just yell at me and I'll, I'll get it done. And so we had an epic day, beautiful day. And in the middle of the night, as we were sailing back, a pretty big storm blew in, and we were kind of surrounded by two different thunder, thunder fronts, tons of lightning, tons of wind, and a pretty decent-sized swell. Not, not one that would make a salty sailor worried, but a guy from Oklahoma, I was thinking, this, this could get a little dicey. And uh, we started talking about the construction of the boat, and the captain of the boat started talking about the keel. The keel of the boat, which runs all the way from bow to stern under the boat, is actually made of really heavy metal. And the keel of the boat extends down into the water, and it's what creates the stability of the boat. It's what prevents the boat from being capsized. And in the case of the boat getting hit by a wave and capsizing, the keel is balanced in such a way that it will actually flip the boat back over so that it won't remain upside down. And I was thinking today about this particular part of our text, that we've covered Paul's instructions to be watchful and to stand firm in the faith. And we've talked about acting like men, being men of courage and being strong for the benefit of others. But today, the last thing that Paul adds in this exhortation to men is the keel of manhood. It's the keel. It's, it's what's under the surface it's the thing that we don't know how to point to that makes a man a peaceful presence in the midst of chaos. 
when things fall apart, to be the kind of man that can be steady in the midst of that, to be a rock for your wife, to be a shelter for your kids, to be a man in the midst of anxiety that's confident in the goodness of God, to be a man that can weather the storms of suffering. All of those below the surface dynamics of manhood can be summed up in what Paul ends these verses with. Let all you do be done in love. Let all you do be done in love. In some ways, we've been talking about what's above the surface for two weeks, and today we get to go below the waterline. We get to talk about becoming the kind of men that are marked by the love of God, that are so shaped by the love of God, that even in the midst of storms and chaos, we can reflect the heart of Father God. And what I want to say today is, as we dive into this, that Paul's after more than just do loving stuff. When he talks about letting all we do be done in love, this is more than just behaviors that check the box of love. In fact, what Paul's getting at when he talks about abiding in the love of God, letting the love of God control us and shape us and form us, is the very essence, it's the heartbeat of transformative Christianity. It is, it is at the end of the day, what separates authentic Christianity from man-centered religion. True religion is marked by the transformative power of the love of God, which is ours through the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say up front that everything we're going to talk about today has its own application for the ladies in the room. God wants you to be marked by love. You are beloved daughters of the Most High God. But because we've been speaking to men, the application that I'm going to give today is going to be aimed at the masculine soul. So I want to do two things, two things. I want to talk about, I want to talk about how Jesus reveals his father and the father's love for his only unique begotten son, Jesus. And then I want to talk about the father's adopting love for sons. And I want to talk about how encountering the love of God in the finished work of Jesus and abiding in the love of God through the finished work of Jesus is the most important duty and it should be the greatest delight of every man in the room. What your family needs more than anything else, even more than competencies. And by the way, competencies are important to manage finances and to engage relationally and to know how to resolve conflict. All those things are important competencies. But at the end of the day, the thing that families and churches and societies are dying for is to have men that have been so shaped by the love of Father God, so fathered by his love, that we can bring fatherly presence to the world around us. That we can be men, we can be men that reflect the heart of God in the way that we love, in the way that we give our lives away, in the way that we discipline our kids, and in the way that we engage our brothers. So take your Bible, two things, two things. It's a two-point sermon and yet it's the sermon that I want to talk about until I believe it with every fiber of my being. It's the one message, if I got one message, I would want to preach to the day I die. Here we go. Number one, I want you to see the father and his only begotten son. Matthew chapter three describes the baptism of Jesus. And this is a really powerful picture of the way in which Jesus navigated his earthly ministry. Look at verse 16. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately, he went up from the water. 
And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I want you to pay attention to a couple of things in this text. The first thing I want you to note is that the affirmation of Jesus' identity as a beloved son is an affirmation that the Father gives Jesus before Jesus does a single thing that that are going to mark his three years of earthly ministry. This is before Jesus has preached a single sermon. Jesus hasn't cast out any demons yet. He hasn't healed the sick. And Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet to accomplish the work of redemption. Jesus has not yet, through his resurrection, defeated sin, Satan, and death. Before Jesus does anything that he did in his earthly ministry, at his baptism, on day one of beginning what he's going to do publicly, The father thunders from heaven an affirmation of his delight in his son that becomes the foundation for how Jesus is going to live and minister and give his life away. This is the bedrock. This is the bedrock. This is the foundation of everything Jesus is going to preach and do for the next three years. And it happens, it happens not after Jesus accomplishes all the great work he's going to accomplish. It happens before Jesus accomplishes the great work that he's going to accomplish. This is the father declaring that he delights in, enjoys, and is pleased with his son, Jesus. And the spirit of God does something really amazing here that we're going to see fleshed out in Galatians. The spirit of God takes that affirmation of fatherly delight and the spirit of God rests on Jesus in such a way to make that knowing deeper than just intellectual knowing. To take the knowledge of the love of the father and to take that love and to sink it into the core of Jesus's being and make it experiential is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is communicating the love of the Father to the Son, and Jesus is going to spend three years abiding in the love of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's going to fuel and empower and lead everything that he's going to say and everything that he's going to do. So listen, this is really important. The father doesn't affirm his delight in the son after Jesus accomplishes all the tasks and assignments that God has for him. The father thunders from heaven his delight in his son before Jesus does any of it. Now, before we go any further, I can understand what a lot of you guys are thinking. You're thinking, well, of course the father delights in Jesus. Jesus is the unique only begotten son of the father. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is different than us. And to all that, I would say, yes, that is true. We are never going to be the unique only begotten sons and daughters of God. We're not added to triune communion. All right, Jesus is the son in ways that you and me are never going to be the son. In fact, no man in this room has any claim based on achievement, morality, or standing to demand that God relate to him as a son. In fact, the Bible's really clear. The Bible's really clear. Nowhere in scripture does the, does the scripture proclaim the universal fatherhood of God of all people. In fact, the Bible teaches that in our sinful fallen state, at best, we're sons of Adam, and at worst, we're described 
as sons of our father, the devil. But there's something crazy that happens here. This is the very essence. This is the heartbeat of what God's going to accomplish in redemption to bring you and me, God's enemies, into his family and to have the same declaration of his adopted children that he has over his unique, only begotten son. So take your Bible. This leads to the second thing. I want you to look at the father and his adopted sons. And to get the heart of our father, why he sent Jesus, I want to show you two verses before we get to Galatians. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, the Bible talks about God initiating the work of redemption for his glory. It talks about God initiating the work of redemption because he loved us. But this particular verse right here in Romans tells us that the way that God's going to be glorified in redemption and the way that he expresses his love for us is that Jesus, his only begotten son, is going to do a work that makes it possible for God's enemies to become adopted, beloved children of God. Listen to John chapter 1, verses uh, 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so here's what I want you to get. Track with me on this. Like, we stand in the Reformed tradition that shaped what's, in my opinion, the best of evangelicalism. And we believe that a whole lot of the work of God in Jesus for our justification is forensic or relating to a court of law. And so here's what we believe, and it's true, and it's good, and it's glorious. Jesus bore your sins and my sins on the cross. All the ways that we belittled God, dishonored God, worshiped God's stuff instead of God, all the ways that we've damaged and hurt each other, our human propensity to break everything that's beautiful, all that got counted as Jesus's on the cross. He that knew no sin became sin. And by grace through faith in Jesus, part of the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus's right standing before his father gets credited to your account. Not that you earn it or get to God. Christianity is not about you building a rope ladder to climb based on good deeds or penance or anything else to get in God's good graces. It's the message that God did what you could not do. He took his perfect son and he bore your sins. And so listen, if that was all the gospel was, that's good enough news for us to lose our minds over for all eternity. If the news of the gospel was just that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins and we can be treated as forgiven sinners for all eternity as servants or slaves of God, sign me up for that program. I'll go anywhere in the world to tell people how good that news is. Okay, if that was all, that would be enough. But here's what you gotta get. That's not all. In that picture of standing before the court in front of the just judge of all things, the judge drops the gavel, declares us forgiven in Jesus, all of our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. But then the judge, 
without ceasing to be the judge. He's still the judge of all things, but without ceasing to be the judge, the judge comes to us. And like in the parable of the prodigal son, the judge takes off his fatherly robe and puts it on our back. And he takes his ring off his finger, the sign of being an heir, and puts it on ours. And he doesn't invite us into the servants' quarters to merely be his servants or his slaves for all eternity. We would receive that deal if that's all he offered. But instead, he walks us into his dining room and he sits us down at a seat of honor at his table and he calls us children. And the very same news that he thunders from heaven for his unique only begotten son is the news that God declares for all of his adopted sons and daughters through the finished work of Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And what we have so broken in our hearts, it's so jacked up in my heart, it's so jacked up in your heart, is that our default mode is to again and again think that the truest thing about us is our failures, our sins, our mistakes, our weaknesses, and to fall into this place where we live on a treadmill of trying to earn God's love and trying to get in or stay in God's good graces. It's almost as if, it's almost as if we think the model of the father relating to Jesus was one in which the father withheld his delight until Jesus accomplished perfect obedience. But instead what we find is that Jesus accomplished his obedience built on the foundation that was sure and unshakable of his father's delight. I want you to take just a second, as men in particular, to think about how big a shift it would make in your life, in your relationship to failure and to struggle and to all the places where you feel homeless and orphaned if we stopped asking our wives and our kids and our bosses and our careers and our track record and our resume to be the mirror that tells us who we are. And I want you to think about how crazy and liberating, like if you can't believe it yet today, at least imagine how amazing it would be if the mirror that was held up to you was one in which your creator and heavenly father held up a mirror and said, the truest thing about you is that I delight in you. What would that mean for the way that you could risk? For the kind of ambition you would have for your life? For the kind of courage and presence? For the kind of invitation when we blow it in sin to not hide from God, but to come to God even in the midst of everything that's gone wrong? Now I want to show you something because I'm not just making this up. This is the essence of redemption. This is what God is doing through the finished work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So take your Bible, go to Galatians 4. Let me show you just a couple of things before we close. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So pause there for a second. Jesus accomplishes the work of justification so that we could be forgiven and cleansed, but he does so so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then look at the work of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a he. He's the third person of the Trinity, he's God. 
And God, the Holy Spirit, doesn't just distribute gifts in the church. He doesn't just work the miracle of regeneration when people are born again. Look at the ongoing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, described here. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Abba, Father would have been the intimate family language of Jesus. It's Aramaic. And it doesn't mean daddy God. That that's, makes it a little flippant and a little weird and kind of infantilizes guys. Like That's not what it's saying. But it is intimate language. It's the, it's the kind of language that an adult son would have in a love relationship with the father or patriarch of a Jewish family. It's close language. It's family language. It's the language of love and covenant and fidelity. And what the scripture is telling us here is that part of the work of the Holy Spirit is this work to take the father's declaration in Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And to take that work that's true, that you might be able to get right on paper doctrinally, and to move that truth and that doctrine beyond just mere intellectual knowledge into a place of your heart actually being able to rest in the fact that like Jesus, the Father loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And there's so many gaps in my life that make it difficult for me to believe that places of brokenness, places of shame and fear, places that are external gaps where it's like, hey man, I thought I would be further along as a husband at this point or further along as a dad at this point or I wish I was the kind of man I wanna be in my 60s as a pastor today. There's so many gaps. But what scripture tells us that's so crazy is that God the Father, God the Father delights in you and me today if your faith is in Jesus, with the same kind of loud, steady, glorious delight that will have in you when you are glorified and without sin in eternity future. That it's not a deal where we, he's, he's loving you incrementally and withholding the fullness of his love until you're completed, perfect, and without sin. That if your faith is in Jesus, the Father's declaration at Jesus' baptism is 100% absolutely his declaration of you and me at our conversion. He loves you. And brothers, I just want to do a couple of things before we pray together. I just want to do a couple of things. What would happen if all the names, both damaging names that have been given to you, names that you're trying to earn, names you're trying to achieve. Like what would happen if the truest thing about you, if the most core name that you walked in and lived in was not the shameful name of failure or loser or screw up or the driven names of fill in the blank as it relates to career or success or money or power. Like what would happen for your ambition in the world if you received the name of son from your heavenly father, and if that became the truest thing about you. Because I think it would actually have the opposite of what a lot of us think it would have. Like so many of us think that we can get a lot 
of stuff done and achieve because we're so driven to try to earn God's love and try to name ourselves and try to clean ourselves up. I actually think the opposite would happen. I think no human being has ever accomplished what Jesus accomplished and he did it in three years. Jesus was the most ambitious man that's ever lived. But his ambition was harnessed and it was driven by and it was rooted in the holy love of God. Like, think about what kind of ambition we would have for our wives and for our kids and for our families and for our church and for God's mission if we received the true name that our Father has for us as sons. Think about, think about what would happen if all of the ways in which even the best dads in this room who've fallen short and who have not answered the core questions of what it is to be a man, think about what would happen in our relationships if our heavenly father answered those questions. Think about what that would mean for you. Like, here's the beautiful miracle of redemption. God the father has adopted you and God the father is now fathering you and the purpose for which he's fathering you is for you and me to become fathers, both biological and spiritual that reflect the fatherhood of God. Be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. And I want to just take a couple of minutes to give you two things to think about. All right, two things to think about. I want to submit to you, number one, that the deepest duty and the deepest delight of your life as a man needs to be daily rediscovering the love of God in Jesus. There's nothing you're going to accomplish. There's nothing you're going to do that's more mission critical as a brother, as a husband, as a boyfriend, as a dad, than abiding daily in the love of God, than rediscovering daily the love of God. The love of God is revealed in God's word. The love of God that is experiential through the Holy Spirit. The love of God that gets sometimes mediated to the people of God. The most important thing for a man daily, if we're going to love our wives and love our kids, if we're going to have a keel that can make us steady in storms, is to make the central focus of every day. It doesn't mean we become monks or leave our jobs. But in the midst of the real trenches of everyday life, the most important thing for you and me, the most mission critical thing is to know, believe, and abide in the love of God. It's what your wife needs. It's what your kids need. It's what your friends need. And the second thing I want you to think about is what would it look like if you actually have the courage to stand naked before the love of God? Here's what I mean by that. Like we tend to, well, let me not use we, I'll be more honest. I tend to bring the ideal version of myself to God all the time. When things are going great, when it's mountaintop, when it's been a good week maritally, when it's been a good week as a dad, when I feel like I'm doing okay at work, um, you know, when, when I've got more gold stars than red checks next to my name, I can feel a measure of confidence in coming to God and sort of not bragging in his presence, but sort of swaggering in and making my request known. But like, what about the weeks where the gaps are more manifest? <laughs> what about the places of my life where I'm prideful and impatient? What about the places of failure? What about when shame's really loud and guilt's really loud? What about when I've sinned and when I've blown it? It's so easy to think that those are the times where I can't come into the presence of God that I need to hide from him. 
But here's what's wild. The finished work of Jesus means that you're always before the living God naked. He knows you. He knows you no matter how hard you're working to wear masks and pretend. And the declaration of God in the finished work of Jesus is he still chooses you, he still wants you, and he's still at work to conform you to the image of Christ. Which means the most powerful transformative thing that can happen in a man's life is when he brings the most broken and needy bits of him, the weakest parts, the parts that are touched by failure and sin and brokenness and loss. When you bring those into the presence of the most high holy God, and he's not just judge that's forgiven you, but he's father that's adopted you, everything starts to change. So I want to take a second. I want to pray for you. And I want to ask the men in the room to stand, if you would, if you're willing. And if you're comfortable, just hold out your hands before God is a, posture of being open before him. Heavenly Father, my, my desire, my request today, the thing I want to see you do so badly is for you to pull some of these names that are partially true or completely untrue off of these brothers. Some of them have received the name too needy, broken, failure, addict. Others are trying to like name themselves through the treadmill of religious and career performance. Father, I just want to ask today that this would be a moment where you would give the Holy Spirit in new and fresh measure to help my friends and me from our heart be able to say, Abba, Father. God, I thank you that the truest thing about these men is not what they have accomplished or will accomplish. And it's not where they have failed or where they will fail. The truest thing about them is what you say. And I thank you for your fathering work in the room that you discipline all sons you receive. You use circumstances, you use your word, you use our wives, you use circumstances of life. But all of that discipline is rooted in your love for us, that you love us and that you're committed to us. So I pray, God, that you would fill my friends with a deeper knowing. Uh, God, I have biblical warrant to pray for this. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Not just intellectual assent, but deep soul level knowledge of your love. God, I pray that you would make these men like ships with a really heavy, deep keel that when they get hit by waves and they get flipped over, that they would be able to bounce back up 
because they know the love of God. That they would be able to cut steady and true courses through the waves because they know the love of God. That they would offer protection and strength and kindness and love and godly aggression to their families because they know the love of God. God, I pray uh, that you would just put your hands on our hearts afresh today and break off break off the, the gunk that keeps us from hearing what you say. Father, I thank you for my sisters in the room that the same thing is true of them, that they are beloved daughters. And I pray that this church would be marked by both the duty and the delight in daily rediscovery of the love of God. That we would open your word, that we would pray, that we would engage in community, that we would remind each other. As we come to this meal, we pray that you would feed us and clothe us, Father. Let me invite the ladies to stand. As we come to the Lord's Supper, this is a meal about the love of God. The reason we do this meal every week as a church is not just because it's a theological conviction. It's also because it's the most practical, visible way that we can remind each other that the truest thing about you is what God says. That because Jesus was broken and his blood shed, if you've trusted in him, your sins are forgiven. And not only are your sins forgiven, but you've been adopted. And the Father speaks a better word over your life than the voice of condemnation and, and guilt and shame. And it's a reminder every week that we still need, we still need to engage the battle with temptation. And we need help to do it. We need strength to do it. We need grace to do it. And if you're not a Christian, we'd love for you to come and give your life to Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about baptism. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we'd ask you to not eat this meal because it's a faith meal and it won't help you without faith in him. But if you're a follower of Christ, come today. And as you take the bread and take the wine or the juice, I want you to, I want you to receive the voice of your father again. Beloved son, beloved daughter, how much does your heavenly father love you? Well, he loves you enough to send his son to die in your place. Set his love on you in eternity past. And in the fullness of time, he sent one born of woman to bear your sin so that you could be cleansed, washed, justified, and adopted in. So come today and eat and let your heart receive fresh grace, and celebrate the love and the kindness of God that becomes your fuel this week to fight against sin. When you're ready, come eat and drink.